Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr. Marie Leoth of University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled The Huguenots and the Williamite Government. Um, I will start with a brief overview of the Huguenots in Ireland. So Protestants in France had been tolerated since 1598 with the Edict of Nantes, with the aim to put an end to the wars of religion. This edict was gradually encroached upon and finally revoked by Louis XIV in October 1685. Approximately one million Protestants lived in France at the time, and some 200,000 chose exile rather than conversion. Of these, around 5,000 refugees arrived in Ireland during the last three decades of the 17th century. There had been encouragement for foreign Protestants to settle in Ireland since at least 1662. Charles II and the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, James Butler, Duke of Ormond passed the Act for Encouraging Protestant Strangers and Others to Inhabit Ireland, whether for purposes of charity or plantation, and the ambiguity is evident. This legislation was restricted specifically to Ireland and renewable every seven years. The strangers were given automatic naturalisation on taking the oath of allegiance and supremacy, and on residing in a city and paying 20 shillings, they were to have full rights to trade, to work and to employ apprentices. The downside to that uh, was that they had to conform to Anglicanism. The Act of 1662 made naturalisation easier in Ireland than it was in England, uh, where the system was much more rigid, and it coupled it with the right to work, which was great. Ormond settled weavers at Chapel Lizard in 1665, and in 1666, a confirmed Huguenot church was inaugurated in the chapel of St Mary at St Patrick's Cathedral. But actually, not much came out of Ormond's effort. Um, the first major wave of refugees reached England, then Ireland, in 1681-82, following the first Dragonade in the French region of Poitou. The Dragonade were the quartering of heavy cavalry, or the dragoons, upon the Protestant population to coerce them to convert to Catholicism. And this practice was clearly uh, another violation of the Edict of Nantes. So a collection was made for these refugees. About 120 arrived in Dublin in the winter. And the Corporation of Dublin ordered that French artisans and craftsmen be admitted to the freedom of the city and escape all taxes for five years. Um, the bulk of refugees arrived after the revocation, but during the short reign of James II, the Huguenots preferred England to Tyrconnell's Ireland as a destination for exile. The situation really changed in the 1690s, when Ireland became a destination of choice. Deliberate government action was taken as Hugu- Huguenot leaders dispersed in Europe suggested Ireland as a haven, and substantive preparation and planning for such movement of people to Ireland was made for the first time. It was felt that an influx of Protestants into Ireland would help to secure the Williamite settlement, with confiscated Catholic lands being used to pay for it. £20,000 were set aside for the plan to bring 600 families from Switzerland, which was overcrowded with refugees. Although in the end only a fragment of this sum was made available, families did move to Ireland. In the 1690s, five major and at least 14 minor settlements were established in Ireland. 
1692, the 1662 Act was reiterated and amended so that now non-confirmism was also accepted. The most obvious initial impact made by the Huguenots in Ireland was militarily, as Huguenot regiments contributed to the Williamite success in the wars of 1689-1691. Several thousand officers and at least 1,200 rank-and-file soldiers left France between 1685 and 1689. Some of them had gone to the Netherlands and from there to England with William in 1688. Four regiments of Huguenot were raised in England for the war in Ireland. These were the regiments of Schomburg, La Melonnière, Cambon and La Caimotte. The Duke of Schomburg commanded, uh, commanded William's forces in Ireland until he died at the Battle of the Boyne. And that's him. Um, there were also Huguenots dispersed in other regiments of Danish, Dutch and English troops. In 1692 they were sent to fight on the continent until they were disbanded and given pensions in Ireland after the Peace of Rieswick in um, 1697. Huguenots in Ireland are also famous for their involvement in other diverse activities, such as commerce and banking. The Latouche and Lunan families were involved in importing and marketing silks and woolens in early 18th century Dublin. Latouche was a Williamite officer on a half pay, and in the first years of the new century, he started to provide financial services for other ennobled settlers and became involved in the administration of Huguenot charitable funds. He established a bank in 1716, for which he is still famous today. He was also a major urban property developer on several urban estates, most notably west of St. Stephen's Green. William III also personally encouraged the linen industry and gave support to Louis Cromelin to establish a colony at Lisburn in 1698. Huguenots were also involved in municipal affairs as bailiffs, sheriffs and even mayors, Pierre Renu was a sheriff of Cork in 1691 and mayor in 1694. Daniel Peridon was another good example, as city mayors in the 18th century were, as a rule, successful wholesale merchants who had risen <coughs> through the hierarchy of the municipal body. He was involved in the sailcloth industry and was sheriff of Cork in 1704, mayor 1712. Joseph Lavie, a prominent merchant, trader and property developer in Cork, was sheriff in 1713, and again mayor in 1720. Altogether, there were five mayors bearing Huguenot surnames between 1690 and 1800 in both Waterford and Cork, and at least one in Galway. So why um, a Huguenot would be in, um, at the head of the, the administration? It may seem odd to think that one of these exiles reached the top and became de facto governor of Ireland. Henri de Massieu de Rovigny had been a prominent figure in France whose, uh, who chose exile to England, where he had relatives in 1686. That's the man. He crossed over to Ireland and served as colonel of cav cavalry in William III's army after Schomburg's death and played a leading role at the Battle of Ockram in County Galway in 1691. And you can actually see the castle there <coughs> in, the, in the painting. In March 1692, he became Viscount Galway, Galway and Baron Port Arlington, and he was appointed to the Irish Privy Council. Galway was also closely involved with the then Lord Lieutenant, Lord Sidney, in the scheme to settle French Protestant refugees in Ireland. He was also made Commander-in-Chief of the Army. In 1693, he was granted land in Port Arlington. But it was in 1697 that Galway truly came to the fore, as he was raised to an earldom, and appointed one of the three Lord Justices to lead the Irish administration, 
to fill in the void left by the death of Lord Deputy Capel and uh, then his successor, Lord Justice Porter. Exceptionally, the Commission of Lord Justices was not acting for Lord Lieutenant, but on their own, which is extremely rare. Galway remained a Lord Justice in four successive commissions between 1697 and 1701. He was serving with different men, some were actually absent, some indulgent, so that he always was the leading figure, and he oversaw two sessions of Parliament. There we go. Uh, in political terms, Galway's time in office in Ireland was defined by a number of important considerations. Unlike in 1690s England, there were no clear-cut political parties in Ireland, even though a nascent political uh, party politics was emerging. The Irish Catholic interest as a political force was not a threat anymore. Political power and government offices lay in the hands of the Protestant landowning interest, who gathered around political principles that were Whiggish in nature, including the fear of Catholicism and the preservation of the powers of the Legislative Assembly. Another feature of Galway's term of office was the significant constitutional debates that were taking place at the time. Politically, Protestant Ireland was becoming more self-aware at the very same time that the power of England over Ireland was being reinforced. Hence, the period was crucial in the history of Anglo-Irish relations as well as in Irish constitutional history. And I wish to turn to the matter of how Galway fitted into this complex period of history and what mark he left. So I've chosen three examples. I'll start with the factions. One of the new administration's primary task was to deal with the existing fac factions in Ireland. Galway had to broaden the court party and put an end to the factionalism that had been rampant under Lord Deputy Capel and had proven disruptive in the parliaments of 1692 and 1695. So as to ensure a decent vote of supply, which was badly needed after the wars, and uh, to meet the increasing expense of government. It was not an easy task. But with the help of the Lord Chancellor and his friend John Methuen, this was achieved. The Lord Chancellor played an important role as he gained the, conf the confidence of Capel supporters and brought in friends of his own and therefore he strengthened the court party and the followers of the uh, Porter faction uh, agreed to behave. To have a strong court party would ensure a smooth session and the pa passage of legislation including the supply desired by the Crown. Galway had some trouble with um, the MP for County Wexford, Philip Savage, who was wannabe leader of the opposition, which was previously the Porter faction. And he even had several meetings with him, obliging him to apologise for his disruptive behaviour in the Commons, and especially his attacks against the Broderick brothers, who had belonged to the court party since 1695. So thanks to that management and diplomacy, the Parliament voted uh, a decent supply nominee contradicente. The second example is the Articles of Limerick. The bill to ratify the Articles of Limerick was probably the most significant bill that Galway had to deal with in 1697. These articles, which had brought the war in Ireland to an end in October 1691 and had included the promise that they would be ratified by Parliament, were to be a cornerstone of the new Williamite Protestant settlement. The hostility of the Irish Protestant political nation to the Articles which were judged to be too generous to Catholics, had ensured that there had been no attempt to ratify them in 1692. Again in 1695, Cable had advised his superiors in England that, uh, quote, that such a contentious issue should be put aside, end of quote. Even in 1697, it was believed that such a bill had the potential to wreck the session all on its own. And indeed, it proved to divide opinions, but the articles were finally ratified six years after the end of the war. 
It finally clarified the land ownership situation. And Galway had done what was needed for the Irish Parliament to, to accept um, the article. His role was pivotal in leaving out the so-called omitted clause, which had been in the actual draft of the, of the bill, um, and covered the people under the protection of the Jacobite army in Limerick, Kerry, Cork, Mayo, Clare, and Galway. So these people would have actually kept their lands if that omitted clause had been kept in the, in the articles. Um, and by doing that, he ensured the Protestant political nation felt that the articles were more acceptable and that they perceived the treaty as less favorable to Catholics, especially in terms of land ownership. But in fact, this um, leaving the omitted clause outside mutilated the articles and not a single article was confirmed in, in full. The third example I have is the sole right. Um, so in 1692, the, uh, the Commons had claimed the sole right to initiate monobills in Ireland. The situation had become out of hand and Lord Lieutenant Sidney had rebuked them before he adjourned Parliament. When Parliament met again in 1695 under Cable, a compromise was reached, um, by which the Crown would always initiate the very first monobill of a session, and it had to be obviously accepted. So when Parliament met again in 1697, it was considered to be a new session, although it wasn't, but you know. But therefore, uh, it was time to test that compromise. Nobody was ex exactly sure how it would actually work, and uh, Galway had to avoid another conflict between the administration and the legislative assembly. He and Methuen drafted a careful opening speech, which, while it started a debate of constitutional importance, as it tested the solidity of the 1695 compromise over the right of the Crown to initiate legislation for Ireland, clarified the situation. And in, when it was raised by Philip Savage, he ensured it did not get out of hand again by meeting him privately. Um, during the second session in 1698, Galway carefully avoided bringing the issue to the fore. The woolen money bill issued by the government, which was to be the first one, was not even mentioned in the opening speech, but it, it was still ratified. So by keeping, keeping it uh, on the quiet side, he ensured it was, it was ratified. So Galway's careful management of this issue confirmed the 1695 compromise. So now I look at the motivations behind the choice of a Frenchman. Lord Deputy Capel had died while he was still in office, and he was replaced by an interim commission of Lord Justices, led by the Lord Chancellor Porter, who also passed away um, shortly after. So the demise of these men in rapid succession left a political vacuum at the head of the Irish administration, and the king needed to find a replacement quickly. William III wanted a self-sufficient administration in Ireland that would create no problem and would not necessitate constant interventions. He needed somebody he could trust to fill the immediate uh, administrative hole. Galway had skill to offer, and he seemed to be the most adequate person to achieve William's desire for stability. It seems that Galway, although he had, he had been naturalised as an English subject, could not be made sole chief governor on account of his French nationality. The fact that he was the only foreigner to have ever been appointed to the Irish chief governorship in any manner would seem to confirm that perception. And in the absence of a suitable candidate for Lord Lieutenant, William chose to have a commission of Lord Justices led by Galway. By 1697, Galway had ample administrative experience. He had been ambassador to England for his former master, Louis XIV. He had been last representative of the Protestants in France at the court of Louis XIV. He had been military commander in Ireland and a member of the Irish Privy Council since 1692. 
All this made him an essential asset in the new government, and as he was familiarized with the demands of administrative service, he could also act as an instructor for um, a younger Lord Justice that was with him. Also, by appointing him, William III knew that the interest of the Huguenot regiments who had served his cause faithfully for nearly ten, ten years would be looked after. Which is more, <coughs> William had granted land to Galway in 1693 as, and a military colony of Huguenot veterans could be settled there, perhaps to re reassemble them quickly in uh, case of a new conflict, which is actually what happened in 1702. Um, it made sense to have Galway, who had been at the grassroots of this military settlement at Port Arlington, and Commander-in-Chief of the Forces to come back to Ireland as Lord Justice. Also, his military experience came in handy in 1698 when the army was disbanded um, in Ireland. Another point that is quite important is that Galway's French origins were advantageous to the king, who needed somebody in Ireland who was not entangled in the type of faction politics that had been prevalent in the 1692 and 1695 parliaments. As a foreigner, it could be perceived as neutral and answerable only to the monarch. Moreover, the appointment of Galway corresponded to William's governing style. The king was a foreigner himself and refused as much as possible to rely on any party. He preferred rather to rely on a small circle of trusted individuals whom he placed in key positions. Yet Galway, in particular through his aunt, the Countess of Southampton, she was French but she married the, the Earl of Southampton, had gained connections with the Whig party in Ireland and as the Whigs still constituted the majority of the English ministry in 1697, um, it was therefore the case that a person linked with them, however loosely, would be acceptable for the appointment. However, it would be inadequate to describe him as a Whig, as uh, Galway first and foremost belonged to the court party and was personally respected and much liked by all parties. Ultimately, the king's great distaste of political parties was probably one of the main reasons Galway was appointed to Ireland, especially after the polarisation that had occurred under his predecessors. The deaths of Cable and Porter and the political instability that followed presented an opportunity to try to control the remaining weakened antagonists. The appointment of Galway certainly stemmed from the need to broaden the court's support as to ensure the continuance of successful political management in Ireland after 1695. Goway was essentially to be the new face of the new Irish administration, breaking away from the factions which were so characteristic of his predecessor's time. Goway might also have been sent to Ireland to restore the confidence of the Irish Protestant interest um, in its administration, especially after the accusations of embezzlement, mismanagement and corruption against Porter and um, other figures. So the presence of a French Protestant at the head of the Irish administration, however, did bring some controversies. Because he was at the for forefront of the executive government, he was soon attacked in Catholic circles for the anti-Catholic policies being pursued in Ireland. Indeed, Galway was accused to have been the leading force behind the penal laws, that he was taking revenge for the persecution in France on Irish Catholics, and that he was hoping to give the confiscated Catholic lands to French Protestant refugees. I've actually put a quote, a uh, contemporaneous quote there. This has been largely disproved, but some contemporaneous correspondence shows that he was targeted and his name blackened with vitriolic vehemence. Galway seems to have been a moderate man looking for balance, and being in Ireland, he was in a good position to know what the expectation of the Protestant political nation were and what legislation they were likely to pass. 
Part of his job was to consolidate the Williamite settlement and to anchor the Protestant in Germany, and the penal laws were part and parcel of that consolida consolidation. Um, and they had been started well before he was made Lord Justice, so. Um, which is more, he clearly con considered some proposed laws as unnecessary uh, and as, as potential sources of problem and ultimately best avoided. So he did not apply all penal laws systematically. He m made um, choices in what needed to be implemented or not. Um, the fact that he was French annoyed the English Parliament, uh, which hated courtiers and foreigners alike. And um, Gaulle's land grant was resumed in 1700, and the same year William was forced to dismiss him after the English Parliament issued a petition requesting that, quote, no person who is not a native of William's dominion be admitted to his majesty's consuls in England or Ireland, end of quote. Um, I'm going to look at his legacy now. Goa led Ireland relatively smoothly through a period of changes, which I briefly examined here. He was the linchpin between Ireland and England, made English policies such as the 1695 Compromise more acceptable. He understood the Irish political nation and implemented the legislation it wanted, such as the Articles of Limerick and the Penal Laws. Perhaps his most important legacy was expressed by the Lord Chancellor in 1697, quote, Gore's prudence and application to business pleases all people. It is an advantage no government here had yet had, end of quote. He broke away from disruptive factionalism and ensured the Legislative Assembly would work with the government at a time when supply was increasing, increasingly needed. It seems to confirm that a French, as a Frenchman with no previous experience in the Irish government and a man with patronage links but no commitment to any Irish faction, Goway was a new man for a new start. Thank you.